Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Julian Bugini is a writer whose books distill some of the best insights from thousands of years of human thought. His latest is How to Think Like a Philosopher. In it, Julian identifies the key principles that guide philosophical inquiry and suggests how we can apply those lessons to our own lives. He sat down with David Malone to tell us more. It has to be said, a lot of philosophy books really are quite dry. Mm. Yours isn't. Yours isn't. And it struck me when I was reading it, and tell me if I've just read this into it, but it read like a philosopher who said, I really must write a considered philosophical book. But you sort of got carried away. <laughs> it's, it, it felt to me like you'd looked at, I mean, a lot has been written about the sort of the discourteousness of a lot of, dis, of political dialogue and how people can't talk to each other and they are in little silos and everyone talks about debunking. And I got the feeling that you'd looked at that, thought you should write a book, a very measured book about it. And you got carried away and sort of got more and more caught up in the idea of how do I let people remember how to talk to each other without shouting? <laughs> Is that true? Is that Was that behind it or have I just read it into it? Well, it's interesting. Um, it, it, I'm trying to work out if that it's a good or bad thing that it's come <laughs> across like that. When you say it got carried away, um, how do you think that manifests itself? Well, you get, you get, I mean, you start off almost at the beginning of the book, you talk about, Virtue epistemology. Mm. And I thought, aha, okay, mm. epistemology, long words, here we go. We're off for a bit of philosophy. But almost immediately, you move away from long philosophical words and just talk about how people do or don't think clearly and and where they go wrong, how they end up not listening to each other, mm. but putting yeah. words into each other's mouths and getting frustrated and shouting at each other and talking past each other. Yeah. That's well, I mean, me. yeah. Okay, interesting. So first of all, I should just say that, you know, I never use a word like epistemology without saying what it means, right? In fact, for many, I've done quite a lot of public philosophy um, in terms with, with other people, like uh, I was academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, where we put on public talks, and I was editor of the Philosopher's Magazine for many years. And I always had to tell everyone, you know, don't use jargon. And by the way, epistemology is jargon because philosophers don't even <laughs> realize epistemology is jargon. It basically means theory of knowledge, folks, if you're not familiar. So you don't need a, a big, long word. Well, I don't think it's about getting carried away as such, because I think that was always uh, the intention. The, the intention was always to not just describe how people think in when they're doing philosophy, it was to think about the sort of best habits and practices of philosophical thought as they would be useful or relevant to everyday thought and discourse. So there's always the intention to to anchor it and to to make those connections with mm. with everyday life. Um, so it wasn't so much that I sort of set out to, to be sort of narrowly philosophical and then sort of got carried away. I, I always never wanted it to be narrowly philosophical mm. in, in that sense. Well, let's talk about some of the things that you put in. I mean, why did you start off with virtue? Okay, well, that's... It's, it's um, sort of an old-fashioned word in some yes, way. Yes, it is. No, no, it's not a vastly popular word, and it's almost no. the first thing you talk about in the book. Yes, I know. Uh, we have this problem that that's the word, and it's not necessarily got great connotations these days. If you think of virtue today, I don't know, what do you think of tofu or, you know, <laughs> uh, something like that, you know, virtuous... <laughs> It's not meant to be fun. Uh, but anyway, but but virtue is we're really going back to the sort of sense, the ancient Greek sense, as as Aristotle would talk about virtue. And and virtue really is just about those habits and dispositions which are conducive to a good life, both for yourself and for others. Okay. Mm. And vices are uh, the the uh, negative ones of those. I mean, this this is a very sort of alien sort of way of thinking about sort of ethics um, in your, if you're in a Christian kind of culture, because, you know, we tend to think of sin and good and evil and all that kind of thing. But, you know, for the ancient Greeks, and I think in other, a lot of other ethical traditions and as well, it's really about living a good life. It's as simple as that. Mm. And that entails, you know, there's a, doing what's right for you, but also being a good citizen, being a good neighbor, whatever it might be. Now, as relates to thinking, 
The reason I wanted to make this central, and it's also the reason why I thought this book could be a bit different to previous books on philosophical thinking. I think if you were to choose a random book on philosophical reasoning, I mean, not, there aren't hundreds to choose from, but there are quite a few, they'll tend to talk about the mechanics, if you like, mm. uh, you know, logic, what makes a, a valid and sound argument. And they'll talk about fallacies and formal fallacies and informal fallacies. And it almost sounds like there's a manual, follow the manual and you'll think well. Now, all those things are important and I do cover them in the book, but I, I've just become more and more convinced over the years that one of the most important things about thinking well is having these right habits and dispositions and attitudes, is attitudes actually. So I use this little analogy in the, in the introduction, which is what makes a difference between a good and a bad driver, right? Now, I mean, most people know how to use the gear stick and uh, uh, the clutch and whatever it might be. This is going to date, you know, the electric car. So all this is going to go out of date <laughs> in like no time at all. People's technical abilities of driving tend to be quite similar. What makes the difference? Well, the good drivers, they're careful, they're attentive, they're they're looking out for, mm. for other people. It, it's, to, it's to do the attitudes they have while they're driving. And I think thinking is the same because you get a lot of very, very clever people who can got all the logical chops, if you like, who are very good at sort of like constructing arguments, but they just want to win. They just want to show you how clever they are. They just want to defend their view. And there are other people who are perhaps aren't so strong on those formal aspects, but they're sincere and they're, they, they have that genuine desire to understand and to get to the truth. And I think those people tend to be the better thinkers. So that's why the virtue thing comes in. I think the attitudes uh, uh, that we bring to our thinking are at least as important as the, the formal technical aspects. Yeah, and that runs through the book. I mean, as you said right at the beginning of that, it's not just about you it's about the other person as well and that runs through the book this it, it is as you say not about winning an argument but trying to understand i suppose why you're even having one why what is it that has made the other person take a different view what lies behind their thinking trying to understand that rather than just disagreeing with it yeah i mean i think that's true i think one of the sort of core ideas again you know and you see this i mean i, I give examples of uh, contemporary philosophers and great philosophers who I think exemplify this. But there's this idea of the principle of charity, right? Again, we've got virtue, we've got charity. This is sounding like some kind of, I don't know, St. Augustine, but it really isn't. Um, <laughs> so the principle of charity is is not to do with, you know, giving alms to the poor. It's about um, asking yourself, well, you know, what's the most reasonable interpretation of what that person has just said? Not what is the easiest way to dismiss it, and this is something which I think social media particularly encourages, I'm afraid. I don't want to blame everything on social media. People did it before. But, you know, when, when you hear an argument that you don't really like it, you don't agree with it, there's a t great temptation to kind of, you know, come up with a clever clogs way of making it sound as stupid as possible. Hmm. What you should really try to do is, is say, well, what would be the most intelligent way of understanding that? What's the strongest objection? And you shouldn't have anything to fear from that, because if if your view is correct, then it should be able to have an answer to the strongest objection against it. And if it hasn't, then you ought to change your mind, right? Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult. We just, I think, we just by habit go into you know d d defense and or counterattack mode when we hear something we don't like. I've well, got to say, it's about that, winning, isn't it, rather than understanding. In other words. Eve, you can sometimes knock down someone's argument by finding some inconsistency or putting up a straw man. You might win the argument, but their argument might actually be right. You can actually win an argument against someone who's correct and you're wrong. No, that's right. And I know people who could do that. I know people who've <laughs> never lost an argument in their life, but they're not right about everything. It's just that they will wear you down with their with their, their logical power and, the, and their, their, their great processing that goes on. I mean, that's true. Because the other thing is, of course, that, well, I mean, first of all, I think in describing these things, we, we've always got to recognise that I mean, no one's above them, right? I don't write about these things claiming that I always exemplify. These are, these are things to aspire to. And I think no one ever thinks well properly all the time. And I think it'd be very surprising for anyone if they're honest about themselves. What's the first thing you feel if I mean, if you, were to, for example, if you were to ask me a really difficult question this evening, uh, which might suggest that I'd said something incorrect in the book, right? 
my first instinct would be to defend myself. It would be mm. to kind of have a comeback to you, you know. So, you know, challenging that and saying, well, maybe I should, maybe there was something wrong and maybe there is something I have to revise. It's very, very difficult. But in the long run, you gain, because I think the other the other problem people have is that they get too afraid that it's a kind of zero-sum game, that you're going to win or lose, if you go back to the winning analogy. Mm. Whereas actually, a lot of the time, you can learn from people who disagree with you who are smart and intelligent, um, because you may not end up having their view exactly, but you will nevertheless maybe end up changing your view, sort of adjusting it, making it a better version of what it was. Mm. So, you know, challenge is the way in which we make our views more robust and, and, and stronger. So if we have that, if we just go with that instinct to just sort of like bat them away, we're not really doing our own views any favours in the long run. Mm. One of the things you talk about is that it's better to try and understand someone than to debunk them. And that, that I don't think you use exactly that phrase. But do you think there's a sense in which some of our, uh, our present debates have, have lost track of that? That they're so, because there's, there's a kind of moral self righteousness in a lot of modern debates where people feel that because morality is on their side, that there's no, it would even be bad for them to try and understand the other person. Yeah, well, I think that's true. And again, I, I don't want to exaggerate how much things have changed. I mean, I think publishers, I think, were very keen, you know, that I make the case that we need philosophy right now. And I kind of resisted <laughs> that in a bit. And I kind of said at the beginning that um, we do need philosophy right now, but that's because we always need to think better and it's always now. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm not sure whether... How much is particularly different about now? But the the the, the moral righteousness point is a very a very very important one. And I think I think that is true. That and maybe this has got worse. It's this idea that if you concede anything to the other side, you're you're somehow I don't know you're 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 cavorting with the devil or whatever mm. it might be. Yeah. Um. So you think of a lot of hot button sort of moral issues at the moment, sort of things in buzzing around the, the sphere i think you know, people don't want to kind of say okay you have a point you may have a point there they just want to demonize them if i can take one which is which is has got more controversial again but perhaps isn't the most controversial if you take the abortion debate for example mm. i think that people really don't want to engage with the complexities of that and i'll say you know i am pro-choice absolutely pro-choice but I think the point is that the, the people of pro-choice want to sort of like keep it on the grounds that they're most comfortable with, which tends to be the woman's rights, because you know, everyone's in favour of women's rights and everyone's in favour of, of women having power over their bodies. Well, not everyone, but you know what I mean? Most people are. They don't want to get involved so much with questions of the moral status of the fetus, because that's trickier, right? It, it, that's, more, that's, more, that's murkier. And I think, you know, they want to kind of imagine that everyone who is against abortion is simply somehow wanting to sort of like prevent women from exercising their rights. Whereas actually a lot of the time they just have a very strongly held belief that the unborn infant is as valuable and important a life as a newborn one or, mm. or an adult, right? Now, people don't want to, they don't even grant that that, might be a sort of understandable view to have because they fear that that's handing something over to the opposition. Mm. I think in the long run, if you don't engage with that, you're not engaging, you're, you're never going to persuade people for a start because if you're just banging on about the argument that's strongest to you and you're not even engaging with the argument which is strongest to them, you're not going to be able to persuade them. You touch on that a couple of times in the book. You talk about cluster thinking, which mm. made me smile when I um, heard it because I could think of another phrase that had cluster in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought it was interesting because it does touch on why everyone is sometimes reluctant to, as you said, and concede a point to the other person because somehow they think, well, if I concede that, does that mean I've got to change lots of other things yeah. that I think? Yeah. It's like collateral damage. Like, I can't accept that you might be right about that, Julian, because if you were right about that, do I have to give up half a dozen other things? Yeah. Well, I mean, there is an element of that which is understandable, which is that our beliefs don't really exist in isolation. They do kind of form a set which will be more or less coherent. And so often it is indeed the case that uh, if you 
give up one but if you realize you're wrong about one thing you will have implications for mm. other views so 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 in that sense it's kind of understandable that we are a bit reluctant to kind of let a domino fall if you like <laughs> but i think the problem is and you, you talked about this phrase cluster thinking and of course you know the, the kind of clusters you were thinking of were those breakfast cereal things weren't you of course of course yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. That's what I was um indeed uh but the, the, the cluster thinking is that Often we we think, we assume that lots of beliefs form a natural set, and actually they don't, right? So there are certain things that go together by, by chance, by convention, or by bad reasoning. So uh, you can think of examples like this. I mean, climate change, it's been a real problem for climate change, actually, because I think for a very long time, a lot of people assume that climate change went with the, a general cluster of sort of left-wing, left-liberal views, and it actually sort of like hippie sort of green views, right? <laughs> so all the sort of like stuff around climate change, people thought it went with a different cluster. And they thought that, you know, <laughs> so people on the right just weren't into this. And so there was a lot of resistance, particularly in America, to accepting the scientific fact about climate change because it was assumed to belong to a different set of beliefs. And I think similarly, some of the solutions that we need to adopt with climate change um, are also getting similar kind of uh, resistance. So, I mean, nuclear power, of course, is perhaps the most obvious one. And what it's interesting that you, what you see now is that quite a lot of people who are environmentalists have embraced nuclear power because they see it as being part of the solution to climate change. But I think a lot of people just can't sort of shake that feeling mm. that, you know, nuclear power belongs on the wrong side of the debate. It's not on the <laughs> nature trees and, and fluffy rabbit side. So it's kind of got to be bad. It can't be part of the solution. And so that acts as an obstacle. And, you know, carbon taxes as well. You know, the economist is in favour of, of carbon taxes, but the economist is in favour of market economics. So therefore, surely that can't be part of the solution <laughs> either. But, but it is. You know, carbon taxes would be a great way to solve things. So we've got to be really careful to check that when, when we assume beliefs come together, we're actually right. And I think very often they don't. Very often we can give up something and, and keep the rest. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hmm. Well, and you, you, you raise the, um, the the word assumptions, which you spend quite a bit of time in the middle of the book looking at from several different angles. And as you say, that it's it's often the assumptions that are that are the stumbling block to people being able to talk at all, and that you 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 need to understand what your assumptions are as well as what the other persons are. Yeah, no, that is true. I mean, uh, so much of what we say and do and think is is based on assumptions. And sometimes, you know, there are assumptions that we're kind of aware of at certain times, but we just not don't have at the front of our mind. Okay. So, you know, if I walk into a coffee shop and buy a coffee, right, um, I'm doing it on the assumption that um, the person behind the counter isn't a poisoner or something you know i mean uh, that's, that's not kind of like an assumption that is it's not in the forefront of my mind but it's not like i don't i'm not aware of that as an assumption but a lot of the assumptions perhaps we, we, we are we are not we are not so aware of uh and 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 so this is i think a really difficult one to do because mm. the whole point about an assumption of this kind is that is that you're not aware you're making it <laughs> so how do you learn to spot what your assumptions are mm. when actually these are things which by definition you're not aware of and and so that's not easy i mean one way you do it is you simply get into the habit of, of questioning your views in general 
you know, why should I think that? And if you sort of probe away about what assumption would make this true, you can sometimes perhaps uncover things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's easiest to uncover when you're kind of aware that something doesn't quite fit together, you know, uh, you know, that you're perhaps, you're perhaps got a vague sense that you're not being entirely rational. And then you can say, well... Isn't it, isn't it also often it's the things which you would think, well, of course we don't need to talk about that. That is just, this is obviously true. The, you know, the sort of received wisdom problem. Yes. That's often what I find in the the research that I do talking to scientists is that it's the things which you thought, well, of course we don't need to question that, which often precisely the things you need to question. Yeah, it is. It is true, but the reason it's difficult is that you know, in retrospect, when you when you question the right assumption and you go, "Aha!" Everyone's been making this assumption; it's not true. You feel very smart and clever, but you know, you have to run through quite a lot of assumptions, which it turns out, you know, you can't do without or yeah. perfectly reasonable before you find them. So, you know, there's a certain kind of skill in in spotting these things, mm-hmm. and I think you know, th- this is one of the things which I think is frustrating and difficult about thinking well, which people don't want to hear. Uh, they would like to think you can just have a method, but you know there is no algorithm in this sense. Yeah. Uh, there is no element of being a skill, um, and you have to exercise your judgment. And these things can't be reduced to, to to algorithms, which is why you know learning principles of logic isn't enough. Um, so you have to sort of develop all these habits. I mean, you know, the, one of the ones I really put front and center is is it sounds basic attending paying close attention mm. i actually have become more and more convinced over the years that this is the, the key thing that actually a lot of uh, the time where we think sloppily or come to wrong conclusions it's simply because we haven't paid enough attention uh, and therefore we've made assumptions or we've jumped conclusions whatever it might be or we haven't checked the facts whatever whatever it is simply get the habit of like thinking and attending carefully to, to what it is you're thinking and why you're thinking it will often then lead you to any problems with that. Hmm. When you raise the the idea of facts, because that's a word that has been used to death in the last couple of years. Everyone says we must follow the fact it's fact-based, but you, you make the interesting assumption that what different people think are facts is often based on the theory that they've started with. Well, that is, yeah, that's true. That, that's interesting because I, 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 I think this is something that sort of came to me in, in the sort of writing. I mean, one thing I love about writing is that, you know, writing is a way of processing your thought. And in a way, you know, I don't really know what I think until I've written about it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of the, to me, you know, that's part of the process of thinking. And it's interesting because uh, as an aside, I think people have got to think about how they are individuals. And I think that mm-hmm. How people think will, will, will depend a little bit on them. Some people are very visual. I mean, yeah, something's a bit too. I think a little bit is much, too much is made of these thinking styles things. And mm. I think when kids in school are, are encouraged to decide what is your thinking style, and you know, it's, it's pigeonholing them. I think that's dangerous. But there's something. There's something to it. So I think like that. So sorry, we're going back to this thing about. So I've now lost the thread. Or, well, it, it's just. That everyone always thinks that yes. facts, so it, anyone can spot a fact that they're like pebbles on a beach, but it's not yeah. like one person's fact is another person's assumption. Or, or it's well, the, well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I think the point the, the point you, you you picked up on before, which I think is even more significant one, is that you can set out with the view to be thoroughly empirical, you know, base your uh, beliefs on the evidence, okay? And you can think, this is the way I work. And then what happens is you you end up with a theory which is evidence-based, right? But then having got that theory on the basis of evidence, you then become a slave to the theory. Mm. And then what you admit as fact or not fact is is distorted by this. I'll, actually, I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, you, you may this may resonate with you. Tell me if I'm completely wrong here. In science, okay, so... I remember someone I knew who was very, very into in a sort of amateur but very, very informed way about evolutionary theory. And one of the things that was kind of foundational in genetics was that, you know, you you don't pass on anything you've learned. You don't pass on learned stuff. So if I get really, really strong and clever, 
then um, strong and clever, strong and whatever it might be, or good at something, I can't then pass that on in my genes. You know, the, so the genes don't learn from your life experience. And, and all that's tr- is still true, right? But I think the point is people got so convinced about that that they weren't paying attention to the evidence that, or they were dismissing evidence that came along that actually, surprisingly, despite that being true, it seems there are ways in which your life experience can have an impact on your genes. What's all that about? So now we have epigenetics, right? So everyone gets very excited about epigenetics. Epigenetics um, emerged as this exciting new field because people worked out, discovered that although the genes themselves don't change, you can't change which genes you pass on. What can change is is which aspects are switched on and off. I mean, that's my very crude. I hope I've got that kind of right. You have, yeah, that's it. But I think I think the point is that you know, getting so convinced, I'm a, I'm an evidence based person, and the evidence says you can't what you do in your life doesn't affect your genes, therefore it can't pass it on. I think made people then blind to those facts, which actually led to a you know not a rejection of their view actually, but a, a major major refinement and advancement. Hmm. Another thing is I want to pick up because a lot of the things in the book you 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 just touch on something which as soon as I, you read it you go oh I see how that relates to to the world as it is but you you don't get carried away with saying you know with delving into all of the ways in which the world fails but you you talk about bias and of course that's a huge topic um, but interestingly your view at least in the book was that trying to eradicate all bias so that you achieve a godlike objectivity well a is not probably not possible and b you suggest it's just not as honest or as achievable as i think what you called it is honest biography tell us tell us what you meant by that because i thought it was a lovely subtle and important point well i mean so so okay so i think that obviously one should be aware of your biases and one should try to counter them but i think it's it's his point if you imagine you're free of them uh then that's very very dangerous right so you have to become aware of them actually i'll I'll give you an example what i think is an example of this from philosophers because i i don't want to the book isn't intended just say philosophers are the the best great hooray no you never say that in the book at all in fact i i wanted the subtitle to be after how to think like a philosopher and when not to and and that that for a long time <laughs> was my working title people said what book are you working on i said this is it and i really like that subtitle I like most it people too. most people like you would react with, with a chuckle and all that stuff um it didn't go down too well with with anyone in publishing though because they mm-hmm. they have golden rules and you know you mustn't be negative or you mustn't undermine your title in your subtitle i thought it was anyway we'll we'll see we'll see uh but philosophers have sometimes betrayed bad habits of thought. So here's the example I'm thinking about. It's well known that the sort of like gender representation in philosophy is really quite poor. You know, there's women represent a pretty low percentage, particularly of senior positions in philosophy. I think it's still only in the 20s a percent. Right now, the point is that this is atypical. It's not just that that's what academic life is like. It's not like that in other disciplines. And it's also not like that in disciplines which have been stereotypically male. So maths, for example, you know, female representation is much, much higher. And in fact, at undergraduate level, it's about 50-50, male and female as well. So, So why is it that philosophy has done particularly badly at advancing the cause of equal representation for women. I don't think there's a single answer to that, but I'm convinced that one part of the answer is that philosophers, of course, are very proud of their ability to think without prejudice, without bias. We're just following the argument to sort of, you know, to quote that hoary old saw of of Socrates, so they 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 were so convinced that you know the gender of, of the arguer had nothing to do with the validity of the arguments, and that therefore um, you did philosophy couldn't have a problem with 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 sexism because because gender's got nothing to do with the strength and weakness of arguments, and I think that was just naive. It's naive they weren't recognizing all the ways in which the institutions and unconscious biases were getting in the way. And as a result, philosophy didn't make the same progress that other disciplines did. Mm. So you've got to be aware of your biases and accept them if you're going to go with it. And also sometimes, 
you know, you always have to accept the fact that it, it's not perhaps, perhaps bias is the wrong word, but people do have different kind of uh, like personalities and characters. People think differently, partly because of the type of character they are, right? Mm. So there are philosophers who are, you know, really into nailing things down and, and logical precision. They That's what they want. They want everything to be as clear as mathematical as possible. And there are others who um, have a more of a literary kind of way of thinking. I mean, these are only two, and they don't exhaust it. Mm. And this will affect the way they do their philosophy, okay? Now, I don't think we can just, I can't imagine a world in which there'd be perfect convergence between the ways of thinking of one type of philosopher or another. You know, there are certain points where all sensible people will come to agree on the same things. And there are other things where sensible people will come to slightly different conclusions. So I think we have to be open and honest that particularly these kind of philosophical questions, which can't just be answered with complete objectivity by reference to the facts, they're going to be different perspectives. And that's partly to do with the temperament and personality of the thinker. It's always heretical because, you know, we're supposed to be just rational, but you know, we have to give up the illusion that we are just, there is such a thing to be purely rational because we're human beings does anyone think that we're here purely rational surely surely people grew out of that nonsense well they do but i think they think that when you're doing philosophy you can sort of well again this is kind of a, the assumption is that when you're doing philosophy uh you can like a scientist can i think that i think actually there's a bit of science envy there i think so too <laughs> so so you know we know that scientists are not purely rational people you know scientists sort of you know have affairs and they um, embezzle funds or, you know, whatever it might be. They, and they, they tell so, lies and they get it wrong. They tell, they exactly, exactly. I've, I've, been, I've worked with scientists for 30 years. They have all the same failings as everybody else. Exactly. But <laughs> in science itself, um, the truth will out, I think, you yeah, know, in the end. Mm, um, people can agree. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> people, there are, are green methods. And there's a sense which people believe this, if, even if it's not perfect, there is a high degree of you know that it's a very high percentage of it is, is just about what the evidence and the reason suggests i know they're slightly romanticizing it but there's a high degree of confidence in that and i think the idea is that you know philosophy should be the same that we can agree on what it means for an argument to be valid and sound and what it means for it to be invalid or fallacious and because of that um although of course we're not purely rational people if we're focusing on the arguments as rational people, we should all agree. And I, I think it's 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 not like that for, for lots and lots of reasons, because there's so many so many sort of dimensions of interpretation in philosophy as well. It's never mm. just a matter of reading off the facts. And Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But also, I mean, the point of your book is you're, you're not trying to tell people how to do philosophy. You're trying to tell them are there habits of thought which work in in real life? And in real life, most questions don't have a single answer because life isn't because you know you you then have to know what is the purpose of life for everyone. For some for some people, the purpose of life is having a huge family of children that adore them, or for another person, it's um, having a lot of Lamborghinis, and another person, it's going on holiday a lot, and that you know. So there's never going to be a rational answer we can all agree on, is there? Well, I think certainly when it comes to how to live and what makes for a good life, I think we have to be, you know, we'd say pluralist is the word. I don't like the word relativist. Relativist sort of implies that anything goes hmm. and it doesn't, right? You know, I think that we can we can rightly say that we shouldn't have, um, you know, it's, it's good the Islamic State failed and, and it would be very bad if, if Putin succeeded in, in Ukraine, etc., um, so, you know, it's not that anything goes, but more than one way to live a good life. I mean, absolutely, surely. I mean, even, even just in terms of basic psychological differences, if you take one of the sort of the biggest and most obvious, which is, you know, introvert and extrovert, you know, I mean, 
again, these things aren't binary and people are complicated, but obviously for some people, the best kind of life is one which involves a heck of a lot of engagement with other people. Mm. And a lot of those people don't think, well, that's what a good life is, isn't it? That's fantastic. Other people know. Actually, again, if we talk about a philosopher making this mistake, in the first edition of the Philosopher's Magazine, we had an interview with the, with the sort of Marxist philosopher Jerry Cohen. Very good, very smart guy, very funny guy too. And he was trying to make the case for... Um, you know, the moral case for sort of socialism, at least, if not communism. And he gives this analogy. He says, you know, there are two kinds of camping trips you can go on. One where everyone sort of brings their own stuff and, you know, they'll swap things and whatever. And there's another one where you sort of go in and you share everything and you cook all your meals together. And everyone wants to go on the second kind of camping trip. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm thinking... No, I don't. That sounds like <laughs> hell to me. I, I would like to go with myself, maybe one other person. Actually, I don't want to camp at all, frankly, but you know what I mean? I, 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 the idea of being in this kind of enforced community for like two weeks is not my idea of a good time. So even on that basic level of how much we want to be, you know, uh, constantly tied up with other people and how much we want to spend time by ourselves. I mean, that, that's a fundamental difference to how you live your life. And you're saying children, is another huge thing, you know. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, too, it's 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 too pluralistic for there to be to be one answer. Yeah, and it's another one of the terms um, that you come up with, which sounds philosophical, uh, cognitive empathy. Mm. But um, despite its slightly off-putting title, um, it sort of talks about what you just said, which is you know that you need to somehow try to understand the other person's thinking and. Mm. And empathise with it in some way, you know. Yeah, I mean, and this is, I think it's a standard thing in, in psychology, you know, they talk about, so, you know, people talk about empathy and empathy is, is one of these things which is the, uh, one of the magic ingredients that makes everything fantastic, you know, so what, <laughs> gra gratitude, yes. Uh, gratitude and empathy will make the whole world better. And, and I, I, I'm being a bit flippant, I mean, they're both good things to, to practice. But when people think about empathy, they often uh, think of the the emotional side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel your pain, and I, I feel that, uh, which is which is again uh, only good up to a point. Because I, I think that if we rely on that emotional empathy, we're limited by our own imaginations and what we think people will feel. And you know, I can think of examples of people I know, for example, who in some ways may seem to be very empathetic but in fact what they're often doing is they're, they're projecting how they imagine they would feel on other people oh i know how you feel no you don't actually you, <laughs> you 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 know how you imagine you would feel in this situation which is two steps removed from it because first of all you may not actually feel like that if you're in this situation and secondly even if you did that's not necessarily how someone else would feel maybe empathy is maybe just go back to the old word of sympathy which has got less fashionable because it seemed to be somehow i don't know a bit patronizing but is that just just appreciate that someone's having a hard time they're feeling things and try and understand them now the cognitive empathy is about really trying to understand you know why people think the way they do which which may involve also of course thinking about their emotions and their life experience whatever it might be you know a reason why someone may have certain beliefs about i don't know how yeah. well i mean I don't, I don't think of concrete examples but you know i mean obviously the way people as uh, beliefs can be informed by traumatic experiences difficult experiences in their youth or, or positive ones for that matter mm -hmm. but you know trying to understand what makes people why do they think the way they think and it and it's it's quite quite powerful janet radcliffe richards one of the philosophers i talked to in the book she says it's if you're puzzled about why someone believes something just ask yourself the question what goes back to assumptions here what assumption what belief would make that view rational right yeah. mm. um so rather than these people are strange and don't understand them, what would make it rational because i think often you find that if someone believes something apparently crazy there is something which would make it rational that thing may itself be crazy but at least you can get to it can i give an example or am i talking mm. too much no no you people want to hear you talk that's what it's, a, it's a favorite example because it's it, every time i remember it i think this is astonishing so apologies if you heard this before but it was when i was writing about atheism in america which was fascinating because i mean this is about 10 15 years ago i think it's improved but it was so shocking it was so difficult to be an atheist outside of the big cities and there was this one person I spoke to who, she was a drug addict, 
And her family knew she was a drug addict, but they let her babysit. When they discovered she was an atheist, they didn't let her babysit. Right? <laughs> now, you think, this is, this is crazy, this is bonkers. But stop for a second. What belief would make that rational? The belief that would make that rational is if you genuinely believe that an atheist could turn your child against the Lord and put them on the side of Satan and therefore set them on the path to eternal damnation, that is infinitely worse than that person harming the child physically or allowing it to die, right? It's just much, much worse. Yeah. So although it seems bonkers, there is a belief which makes it rational. And, th and then you can get inside their heads and you go, oh, well, okay. I mean, it doesn't make it yeah. right, but it's yeah. it, you can understand it now. You know? But isn't, isn't the, as you say, getting inside someone's head, the first step to being able to have a debate with them as opposed to just saying, no, you're wrong. I mean, if you don't understand why they might come to that, if you understand that, it's the first step in sort of being able to then have a discussion with them. If, you, if you're not willing to go that far with the other person, surely you don't have any other recourse than just to say, we're well, wrong and walk yeah. away. No, I agree. I agree. And I think it's a crucial practice. And, and again, I, I'm not saying I'm the best person at this. I think, you know, that, that you know, with, with all this sort of philosophy I've done and, Oh, you know, I, I probably, I probably sometimes, often do launch too quickly into my own view. But I mean, I had a very good, interesting example of this actually. Someone I know, um, you know, sort of like socially, but but you know, but not that well through through playing sport, was a real kind of COVID skeptic and a vaccine skeptic, and I couldn't really work it out. And it's a bit worrying because they're actually a doctor as well. <laughs> and you know, one time I had the opportunity to sort of like it just sort of turned up. It was just the two of us, and and uh, I, I was trying to sort of like ask him to sort of you know why he thought what he thought and to understand it better. And at the end of the conversation, I did understand it better. I mean, basically, the 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 issue is that. You've got to you recognize what else is going on in people's sort of lives and their history. And in this case, this is someone who has, you know, they, they are, although they're a doctor, they have a certain skepticism about mainstream medicine, right? So they, they it's not this isn't out of the blue. They have sort of doubts about mainstream medicine and, and believe in we should be using more natural remedies, whatever it might be. And also they have a very strong kind of a fear and suspicion of you know authoritarianism creeping in and societies you know governments using any excuse to exert more control over people and then they also have some in addition to that some kind of reasonable worries that the 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 relative risks of this disease were uh, not as large as people believed you know that it, it was a bad disease but because it was mainly killing older people, et cetera, et cetera. So you can put all these things together. And I don't, you know, I, I didn't endorse any of those particular views. But when you kind of see them, you can see, you can understand how someone who is intelligent and thoughtful could come to them. And then if you're wanting to sort of like try to persuade them, or otherwise you've got something to go mm. on. And I don't, I don't think I managed to persuade him he was wrong. But I think what I was able to sort of like do was unpick things a bit and suggest that, you know, maybe he could be right to think A, B, C, and D, but it didn't follow that, therefore, you know, vaccines were a bad idea, etc. So there's a, there's a thing here in diplomacy, I think, does it come from uh, the art of war, Lao Tzu or stuff, the idea of the golden bridge, which is that if, if you want to sort of like defeat an enemy often what you have to give them is the, the warfare analogy which isn't, which isn't suitable actually but anyway <laughs> the point is you need you need to give them a way out where they not just save face but also are able to hold on to something important so it's, it's the golden it's called the golden bridge right. and i think in argument that's what you've got to think if you if you're if you're disagreeing with someone and you basically want to smash everything they believe and expect them to, to go along with that. You're not going to succeed. What you, what you need to do is give people the opportunity to, to walk away and to be able to say, I concede the point that really matters to you, but I can also hold on to A, B, C, and D, which are perhaps the most important things. Because mm. I think that's the other thing as well. What really, really matters? Sometimes people, it goes back to the cluster thinking, thing we were saying earlier sometimes people think that it's very important they hold a certain belief but that's because they think it's necessarily connected with the other beliefs mm. and if you can sort of see how those other beliefs can be protected and they could give up that one you know yeah. you, you're you're away 
if you if you um had a lot of free copies of your book which um professions do you think could are crying out for thinking better oh because i can think of at least i mean you know when i read it i have to say you know how you used to in hotel rooms that you would um there would be a bible and yes. bible i thought maybe they should have a cop of julian's <laughs> book on all the seats in the commons when commons comes to sit each year yeah, um, it might, it might is, save a lot of that sort of rah, rah, rah nonsense. But who else do you think? I mean, what well, other professions really think poorly and debate badly and don't want to listen to anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> politics is an interesting one. If you ask me who else, I'm dodging the question because I'm going to stick to Come on, politics. come on, don't dodge it. Um, I think the, poli- but the politics one is interesting because, you know, there is an argument that politicians don't have the luxury to do philosophical thinking. They've got to sort of... Um, you know, get on and, and, and make business. But I speak. To, I spoke to a few politicians. There have been, you know, several politicians over the years who are philosophers or have philosophical backgrounds. Jesse Norman, the Conservative MP, is one at the moment. And uh, Tony McWalter was a, a Labour MP. Tony Wright, political theorist, but really very philosophical guy. But I don't think I don't think that's true. I think I think I think the the kind of things I'm talking about in the book. It doesn't mean you have to commit yourself to kind of like you know being purely theoretical or thinking forever i think they are the kind of skills that could could work there too the, the problem there is not so much whether the people are prepared to do them it's whether they think it will win them votes and i think that's the problem uh because all the time people are persuaded that in order to win votes you have to engage in kind of empty rhetoric and all these kind of like little tricks of you know like the dead cat strategy where you change the subject by just um saying something outrageous <laughs> Yeah. Um, then, then they haven't got any sort of motivation to sort of to, to actually practice that publicly, at least. In terms of other professions, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think, I think that it's, it's hard to think. There are some things where you probably oh, don't come on. Know. How about journalists? Journal. I've got a lot of respect for a lot of journalists. Have you? I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You I think I've met think, many. Well, okay. Well. <laughs> Okay, I think there were a lot of pressure. Again, there were too many pressures to come up with a clickbait headline for a start. Um, and I think that this is a problem. I mean, one newspaper, which, you know, I do I do read a fair bit, I've noticed there's a quite worrying trend for a little thing to appear at the bottom of the article saying the original headline was changed or this was changed. <laughs> and, and you can say yes, because the original one was totally misleading. And I've had headlines put on my pieces, which have caused me huge grief on social media because they don't accurately reflect the article but they're, they're clickbait um no okay so so that 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 is that is true but again it's like the politicians you know people are people are engage engaging in a form of discourse you're just too nice, to you. you're too, nice. too nice you're it's too nice it's too nice okay <laughs> listen um, can i put so, can i put some um questions to you from people who are listening yes that'd be very um, good thank uh, you we'll for start with a really easy one okay therese said who is the greatest living philosopher julian Ah, <laughs> the greatest living philosopher. Well, that's, that's come on, quick as you like. That's really interesting. I think some really great ones have died recently, so I think that's really um, uh, problematic. Um, You're stalling. I, 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 God, you know, I, 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 I can't really answer that question because I, I think, I think the problem there is that I can think of many very good philosophers. Well, give us um, three. Give us three. Go on. Not the greatest. Give us three great ones, then. Come on, you've got to three, give Teresa three, something. Three great people. Okay, I'm going to give you three. Three who are perhaps quite different. Okay, and I don't agree with all they say, um, but let's let's pick Nora O'Neill as a great philosopher, but because particularly thinking about her public role. So she's a baroness. She's in the House of Lords. Um, she's 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 chaired some commissions of inquiry. She's a very very engaged philosopher. And you know her, her more academic work about Kant and autonomy and stuff is, is very good, but I wouldn't necessarily read everything she, she read on that. But I think she, I'd, I'd give her the credit, you know, probably in in the annals of history and like you know contributions to whatever she may not have a huge legacy, but I think what's perhaps more very but very few people do, and I think her her contribution, the way she's sort of bridged really rigorous academic philosophy and public life bioethics and so forth i think is exemplary so i would certainly give her um huge huge kudos i would i would i would like to i'd also like to perhaps pick people just if you pick someone you're going to annoy other people as well aren't you as well um not my problem julian (laughs) i think i've got a lot of time for patricia churchland right who who for some people is a hate figure 
right? I mean, she irritates me. She's hugely caricatured, though. I mean, people think Patricia Churchland is this sort of um, because she becomes associated with this view known as eliminative materialism, which is supposedly the view that we don't really have conscious thoughts or experiences, which is not true. It never meant that. But she's tarred by this, and you get people who should know better kind of like describing her in ways which are complete caricatures. But if you read her most recent books, you know, I think what I admire there is she's she's trying to sort of like, I don't think she's giving up on philosophy and just sort of like handing everything to science. She's trying to understand properly how minds work in a way which is using philosophical methods, but also paying attention to the facts and the data. And I don't think she says anything that's mad or crazy or, or reductive. So because I can't stand the kind of view which says that, you know, it's all it's all neurons and et cetera, et cetera. I just don't buy that at all. I don't I don't think she does say that. So I really like that. That's two. Is that enough? Yeah, that's enough because we'll, we'll need to move on. OK. Uh, someone here said oh, it's anonymous. Will you say something about the rivalry in Britain between what's called continental philosophy and the Anglo-American analytic tradition? Mm. Um, I, 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 yeah, for well, me personally, I, you have to say something about um, British existentialism. <laughs> okay, I'll come to that section. Okay, so yeah, I mean, this is a distinction which has become important. Some people sort of dispute it's a deep divide, and some people say it is but culturally it's a huge one mm. so the short story is it, it's really sort of different sort of responses to kantian philosophy in the 20th century it sounds a bit complicated but essentially in sort of particularly sort of germany and france the dominant sort of way of doing philosophy is around the phenomenological school uh based on people like husserl and heidegger etc and and that's just gone off in a sort of different direction. The analytic philosophy, so called, is is sort of more based on, uh, you know, conceptual analysis and and logical analysis, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm. and is somehow seen as being more empirical than this sort of phenomenological point of view. It's very difficult to sort of like capture it, but I think the, one of the key points about it is this: I think, which is that the, the great tragedy is that. It's to do. It says a lot about the institutions of thought and how they create obstacles. Because one of the things I say in the book is that we really ought to be thinking more what is called interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary way, right? And we we should not be confining our uh, ways of thinking to one particular discipline. And and but unfortunately, so because everything's become so specialized that these disciplinary boundaries have got very hardened and. Even within a discipline like philosophy, you get these boundaries because people are just reading different literatures. They're, they're having different conversations and they become mutually incomprehensible. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a problem. And ever since I've been doing philosophy, there have been plenty of people saying, oh, you know, the, 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 there are people who are sort of breaking down this divide, et cetera, et cetera. But they're only having limited success. As for British existentialism, right, well, French existentialism, you know, it's all black polar next and it's miserable and it's Sartre is anguish abandonment and despair because human life is absurd the human condition is absurd and uh and this this is a cause of much anguish um now the, the British philosopher who uh or philosophical collective who also concluded that life was absurd but had a different response was of course Monty Python and I I, I mean I, I've, I've given talks in the past on Monty Python and philosophy and I actually think you know you've got you've got the same kind of fundamental judgment about the absurdity of the human condition about the lack of grand narrative which is like the postmodern thing all that kind of stuff it's actually all there but the response isn't kind of it's, 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 it's to laughter and irony and I, I kind of prefer <laughs> that British version Maybe just because I'm British, maybe it's temperamental. Maybe if I was French, I would be anguished and in despair and smoking <laughs> couloir. John B says, when have you been wrong about something, persuaded by someone else of something and changed your mind? Is it dangerous to change your mind? Should we be, be afraid of persuasive people? Well, yeah, I think I think most of my changes of mind have have been quite gradual. So I, it's very difficult to think of a kind of a, you know, a, 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 even when I lost my religious faith, which I did, I mean, I was religious in my teens, and by the end of the teens, I wasn't. It was all quite gradual. So, uh, it, you know, I think sometimes people make too much of the sort of the big epiphanies. But I think my 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 views have changed a bit over time on on various things. Um, so, I mean, on 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 sort of 
big issues in the book i talk about how i think i kind of got it wrong in the iraq war the second gulf war i wasn't a cheerleader for it but i was very sort of ambivalent and i think one reason for that was i could see that a lot of the arguments against going to war were very bad arguments actually mm. um and i think the cluster thinking people had made people think that a lot of bad arguments were good arguments because it suited their view but the point is it doesn't matter if there were 10 bad arguments you only need one good one and i think that on balance and in a book i go into details about why i think mm. I, I called that one wrong yeah um uh, so the the, the the clearest sort of big big one in recent times um other things have just been more gradual um mm. i think and 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 perhaps that's you know that's more natural and maybe that's some it's it's hard it's, going back to what we were saying earlier one reason it can be difficult to change your mind the big matter quickly is that beliefs do tend to form a set and it can be difficult to change one major if you have a major belief it's probably going to affect others and you've probably got lots of reasons for having it and so uh i, I don't I, sometimes i get i get i despair a bit actually you know we talk about how important it is to think clearly and be open to new things and you ask someone okay so when did how often do you change your mind on something and people come up with very few answers even philosophers um on the other hand i think that perhaps if if we're more realistic about about these things it's enough that if you if you if you can identify significant developments in your thinking over the years even if they're not even if there are no u-turns among them mm. then that shows you've had some kind of um, open mind about it um frederick says is democracy as a political philosophy in danger in the west uh yeah um next question but, no <laughs> Okay, I, I, I could give a speech on this, which I'm, I'm not going to. I think okay. Here's here's my sort of um, standard answer to this. I think the problem is that um, democracy has always sucked. But hang on, don't don't start throwing things at the screen. Um, <laughs> what we call democracy is something which does work. So the difference is this. So Aristotle, smart guy plato smart guy um okay they had their prejudices but they both thought democracy was dangerous and they thought it was dangerous for various reasons so if i give aristotle's reasons first of all you you know why allow everyone to um you know have an equal say when some people are much more informed than others what happens why let the majority tyrannize the minority and thirdly if you just let the majority rule then there's there's no rule of law because the election the new people come in they rip it up they start again and you need a rule of law for a stable society these are three excellent objections against democracy and what happened was you see what we call democracy isn't quite that it it has we have a we have a system with a very high democratic element and the democratic element was that the people voted for people to represent them to make decisions on their behalf and they could kick them out if they didn't like it uh at, at various intervals okay and point also but the people they elected were there to once in power they ruled for everyone not just the people who voted for them mm. so there were all these kind of assumptions so it's representatives to govern for everyone who wouldn't just rip up everything that had come before they would they would engage in incremental change these were the assumptions around our system and i think the problem is that people what they want is the kind of democracy that um aristotle and plato thought was dangerous they think i think it's almost like we become consumers if i vote for this i want them to do it and i want them to ignore the losers bar who sucks to them and i i just want them to do it and and, and that in, introduces all the problems of democracy mm. so i i think democracy is in trouble because it's because people want it to be too much like democracy in the pure sense well yes and no because when they had a go at that um half the country didn't like the answer i mean the brexit was that kind of democracy which aristotle had questions about uh, and everyone everyone suggests this is what we must have we must have this and then the wrong answer came out for 50% well, well, look, yeah, yeah well for a lot of people yeah so exactly but a good point so, so referendums are exactly the wrong kind of democracy yeah. because they're saying you don't elect people to represent you and come to a considered judgment you just express your view and they do it and Julian, that's, that's what you um, get sorry i haven't been keeping track of the time because i got carried oh. away and it's your fault um sorry we are, we are out of time well it's just been so much fun um thank you so much for coming to to see us um and um come back and see us again soon will you 
I'd love to do that. Thank you for anyone who's tuned in, uh, particularly if you tuned in live, of course, because people know they can watch it later when it's not live. And uh, so I appreciate the people who have taken the effort to turn up live. But if you're also watching it on recording, oh, I'm very grateful you're watching it too, because that's much better than not watching it at all. <laughs> Cheers, From my point of view, anyway. <laughs> and actually, to be, honest, okay, to be fair, if you're hearing me say this, you've, you stayed to the end. So you probably must agree, unless you just like shouting at a screen for an hour, which some people do. Thanks, Julian. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. This episode starred Julian Bergini and was presented by David Malone. It was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and was edited by John Doughty. I make this series with Esme Bright and we have help from Nicole Wong. For more philosophy, take a look in our archive where you'll find Toby Ord, Bernard-Henri Lévy, Noam Chomsky and others. And please do subscribe and review us if you've enjoyed the episode. Until next time. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>